Thank you for tuning in, and welcome to the Diary of an Addict podcast. I'm your host, Jack Smith. The Diary of an Addict is a place where people can share their stories about life and addiction, including active addiction and addiction recovery. Sharing these moments, raw and unfiltered, has a twofold effect. It helps the storyteller deal with shame and guilt, which are obstacles in almost everyone's recovery journey, and it also helps bond ties with the listener who may have thought nobody truly understood them. Listening to stories that most people would hide in a diary may help others feel like they are not alone. Hearing someone say it took them multiple times to finally stay sober might encourage someone else not to give up. Stories have the power to help not only the person listening, but the person telling. The listener gains a sense of hope and inspiration while the storyteller liberates themselves by using their life experiences to create a survival guide for others with similar struggles. Everyone on this podcast, myself included, started at the same place, rock bottom. But that's the thing about rock bottom. There ain't nowhere to go but up. So join me as we listen, learn, and grow together. And remember that people with wounds... Listen to people with scars. Today we are blessed and honored to have Caitlin Ledford McCoy sharing her story with us. I'm excited to share this interview with her because I've seen her at her lowest and at her highest. I actually had a pretty good vantage point because as you'll hear later on in her story while she was out in the streets doing drugs, getting high, selling drugs, I was right there with her. And honestly... Seeing the vast transformation from dope dealer into hope dealer inspired me to take the first steps in making the changes I have in my own life. And that's really what it's all about, ain't it? Using our story to inspire change and hope, even if it helps just one person, then we'll have made a difference. Our story is our strength, so we should own it. The first, I just kind of want you to introduce yourself. Uh, where are you from? Your race? Your childhood? Um, did you have both parents? Uh, did you like school? Did you have hobbies? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, my name is Caitlin Hope Ledford McCoy. Uh, I think it's important for me to share my middle name just because that's uh, a really Im- important piece of my story. Um, I was named after my grandma. I am from Cherokee, North Carolina, presently live in Cherokee, North Carolina. Um, I'm an enrolled member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. And so, yeah, um, so I was actually, I don't even know if you know this, Jack, but I was actually born in Germany. Uh, My dad, he was in the, he was in the army. And so whenever... My mom was pregnant with me. He was stationed over there. And so she actually had me over there. Um, I, I like to say, you know, like, uh, I almost didn't make it back to the U.S. Like, they just seen such a beautiful redheaded baby and didn't want to let me go to back to the U.S. No. <laughs> but no, for real, I have two birth certificates. It's crazy. I was born in a German hospital. And so uh, I actually, I always thought I was born on a, on a army base, but, um, my mom just recently, because I was in school, she told me the story of how I, um, there was like, I think there was a war going on or something, something was happening. 
And so they had all the hospitals sealed up. So I wasn't able to be born on the base. I was born in a normal German hospital. Anywho, fast forward, I have two birth certificates now, um, one for Germany and one for the U.S. So I am duly enrolled everywhere. No, <laughs> but um, I lived, like I said, my dad was in the Army. So anywhere my dad was stationed, that's kind of where we went. We bounced. Um, we moved to Kansas for a time, but I don't really remember a whole lot from Kansas. I think I was just too little. Um, I also think, you know, more of my story, like the traumatic pieces, I don't know. I kind of have blocked a lot out. But uh, so we lived in Kansas for a time. That's when my sister was born before we finally uh, moved back here to Cherokee and we landed in Big Cove where my whole mom's side of the family is from. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, uh, I forgot the other, what'd you ask? What was I like uh, as a kid? Yeah, I got another one too. Like do everybody in your family have uh, birth certificates from somewhere other than North Carolina? Um, I guess my sister does. Yeah, probably where she was born in Kansas. My brother was born here. He's like a OD born in the Cherokee Hospital. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, you told me about your childhood. I was. Um, can we talk about school now? Uh, hobbies, sports. Um. Yeah. So I was. I was a fun loving kid. Like I, I was. I was a tomboy. I loved to go fishing. I was adventurous. Uh, I was the one that was always getting hurt. It never failed. We would always get together with my cousins and be playing basketball or playing outside. And somehow, some, like, I would always end up getting hurt. And then we'd all get our butts busted because, for whatever reason, they busted our butts before they asked us what was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Knew we'd done something we weren't supposed to be doing. But anywho, uh, so, yeah, I was a... Uh, as a kid, I was a, a thicker kid, thick with, you know, the double C's on the end. Um, <laughs> I kind of got, I got bullied for that though, man. You know, like another part too is like, man, kids in school, they were ruthless. Not like by all the kids I got bullied, but like, especially the boys, they were mean, man. <laughs> I was taller than everybody. I was thicker than everybody. And so, and I was smarter than everybody, so I always got pinpointed for that. And uh, I was also a light native, so some, some, not everybody, but some of the kids, I got made fun of that for going to Cherokee school. <laughs> I was like, "What the heck, man? I'm probably more native than you." No. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I know. I know you. I don't mean to cut you off, but I know I was just going to ask you that when you were talking about kids, because I too am a light-skinned native, and there would be like. You couldn't say all the kids because not all the kids were dark enough to, like, make fun of somebody light-skinned, you know what I mean? But most <laughs> of the dark ones would have something to say, you know? Oh, heck yeah. You weren't – what the heck were you doing in that school if you weren't dark enough? <laughs> and I have red hair, so that did not help matters. <laughs> did you uh, Did you uh, make good grades in school? Yes. So I was uh, – I was really smart. I was actually placed in the gifted and talented uh, programs, which was like 
we didn't ha- take the normal in elementary school. I want to say like second grade, I was put into the um, gifted and talented, and we stayed in that all the way up through middle school until like high school when you could start taking college prep courses and whatnot. So <clears throat> we were actually in a whole like all the kids that were in that program were we all was in a separate. We were all in a, in a class together. Um, so really high, like highly accelerated. Um, and I don't know, man, it was crazy because whenever I was in the fourth grade, that's when I decided, like, I wanted to become valedictorian. I remember going to my cousin's graduation and seeing the, um, the valedictorian giving her speech. And I was like, looking at my dad, I was like, hey, that's what I want to do. And I worked my butt off in school. I always made good grades. It just came natural to me, too. I was the teacher's pet. <laughs> I was always, you know, I was that kid. So, um, but I like being smart. You know, I wasn't athletic. So <laughs> I had to be good at something, right? Dive into a book, excel at math. That was, that was what I did. I, uh, because of that, I joined a lot of extracurricular activities. Um, I mean, I don't know if I should go on into teenage life, but uh, I played sports. Whenever I finally hit middle school, I started playing volleyball and basketball and things like that. Getting into, uh, I didn't play like any of the the younger league sports. It's just not something that my family really pushed us to do, and I never asked to do it. You know, I remember my uncles, like my uncle had all his kids playing basketball. Like they were really into it. It was almost one of those things, like if we wanted to do it, we had to ask. It's just not something that I was like, well, like I said, I was a bigger kid. I was, I was good with cheering on the sidelines for my brother or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, um, speaking of teenagers, that's where I was on to kind of go next at with these questions uh remember you ain't got to answer all of them just i kind of just want to give you a little direction with where we're going uh do you remember the first time you got high or drunk or had a drink uh do you remember how it made you feel how old were you yeah so um i don't know if you know this but i'm sure you've probably heard it somewhere but the the national average for uh, age for first time use is 11 years old. Last I knew, I wouldn't be surprised if it's getting younger. I was actually 12 years old. So like I said, uh, and that was, I started out smoking weed. <laughs> I was at a leadership camp <laughs> out in New Mexico. <laughs> Go figure. But that was my thing, man. I think that, I think I enjoyed being sneaky or feeling like I was getting away with things or feeling like I was, you know, had everything under control. And that's another piece of my, my story is uh, I've actually, um, I experienced sexual abuse from, I really don't know the ages and not from a, a me, not my immediate family. It was from extended family, family member. Um, that's kind of marked. I know now doing deeper internal work that how, how that shifted my upbringing, how that shifted me as a person. And now I kind of have a better understanding of why I feel like I dove into my, my grades 
or my schoolwork so much is I, I felt like I was in control. You know what I mean? Because whenever I was, I know I had to be like at least, I want to say from like four to eight maybe is the ages when it was happening to me. And, or maybe not eight, it could be like seven, but it happened for, for a long time. And uh, I just felt so out of control. Like uh, I felt very dirty. I felt like something was wrong with me. I really didn't understand like what was happening. And, and I, and I know now, like I just, I lost the ability to have control of something. And so that was my way of being able to be in control. You know, I felt like I, I had everybody fooled. (laughs) Um, So yeah, anywho, we go on this um, leadership camp, you know, we're in a circle, there's kids. And like I said, I'd been bullied. So for me, having acceptance and fitting in was important. When you go through grade school and I am, I mean, on the daily, you're being told you're fat. You're being told you're ugly. You're being told you don't belong here. You're being told you don't fit in. You don't, you know, like you, you don't, you don't feel like you're a part of anything. And so that was the first time for me to be on this leadership camp and being like, okay, you got to do whatever you can to fit in at all costs. Like it didn't matter. And honestly, I had been exposed to that. You know, growing up here on the Koala Boundary, um, there's what's called generational trauma. And I feel like more families than than not, well, I don't know about that. I can't say more families than not, but I, I'm willing to bet that the the rates are pretty dang high here. Is Families have been exposed to different types of drug use, and it's normalized. You know, I can remember running into, like, as a kid, we would come running through the living room, and my parents would be sitting there, you know, and let me say this. I should have prefaced my whole story. This is my story. You know, I'm sharing. Uh, I really appreciate being able to share. I think that it's important that we share story because it's a gift. Um, but this is how I experienced it. So I hope that I don't say anything that hurts anybody. Um, this is just what how I remember it. You know what I mean? So back into my story. <laughs> uh it was just normalized. They were all sitting there smoking weed, drinking. And so I seen that growing up and just viewed it as something as being okay. And I think a lot of families around here have also grown up in the same kind of conditions, you know, not realizing how it could affect us later on. But I did. Like, I, I thought, I mean, I lived legit was like, okay, well, my my parents have done it. So what's so bad? It's just weed. And then, you know, I, I kind of, developed a really close friendship with one of the girls and um that's kind of when things got started to I started experimenting more (laughs) a lot more faster uh she had an older sister and she had actually just gotten her big money and so I was just talking about this with my husband the other day but um how I don't want to cut you off, but uh, just for people who are not familiar, can you explain what big money is? Yeah, yeah. So um, we because we are EBCI enrolled, uh, we have a casino. And so with that casino, because it's probably owned, it, that means that we all own it. So there's money, the money that comes for the casino to keep it running, there's like a budget that's made out of it, but also we get distributed 
uh, finances from that. And so when we say big money, you start getting that as a kid, as soon as you're put on the roll. And so you start accumulating these checks. So every year this money's being built up. Um, from what I understand, they've also been invested. So a lot of the kids nowadays are getting even, I mean, the, the amounts they're getting is astronomical, but because of the, um, the interest that they've been gaining and just, it's just wild. Anywho. So about this time, I remember she had got like 30 grand. And so like that in comparison to what it is today, it's just, that's like, that's small change, really. <laughs> but to us, it was huge. You know what I mean? Back then, we were like, oh, my God. We really had this really nice car. Yeah. We were driving around flexing out and thought we were the coolest kids on the block because older sis had all the money, which, I mean, it just set us up with a perfect re- recipe to be able to head towards some risky and dangerous behavior, honestly. You know, we started drinking. Uh, the first time I ever got arrested, I was 14 years old. We were um, out drinking, egging cars, just acting ridiculous. And it was a, during a broad run. That was like, we had no business. <laughs> we were just asking to go to jail. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so we got, that's the first time I ever had to call my mom. Um, I had to call my mom. Because by that time, my parents were divorced. Um, They got divorced whenever I was 10. And I lived with my dad for another two years. And then I moved. I had to move in with my mom. He started struggling financially just as a single dad, you know, trying to take care of all the bills, raising three kids. Um, Things just started piling up. So they made the, the move for us to move in with my mom so she started taking care of us and man for those of you who don't know my mama that is not the person that you want to be calling at four o'clock in the morning to come pick your drunk butt up at the police station (laughs) (laughs) her looks when she comes through that door i knew i was dead i almost told him to send me to jail (laughs) (laughs) for real just keep me me away from her (laughs) But, um, so yeah, arrested at 14. I was placed in the system. I was placed in, uh, juvenile services. I had to go to therapy, which I hated therapy, man. Like at a young age, I felt like I was forced to go because my parents, when they got that divorce, they made us go, which now I have a better understanding, you know, being in the field. Um, I just know that they were trying to, to make sure we were going to be able to, to work through that and navigate it. And honestly, I always told myself, and I think this is part of my unhealthiness is like, I always told myself it didn't bother me. Like, Oh, I'm too tough to let things bother me. You know, Oh, I'm fine. That don't affect me when really truthfully deep down. Now that I think about it, like that did, I, I, that did suck having to grow up uh, going back and forth, hardly seeing my dad. I mean, me and my dad, we were two peas in a pod, man. So that really hurt whenever we had to um, to move out from from under being with my dad, because that was my best friend. I was, I've always been a daddy's girl, and uh, so when that happened, it really did affect me more. But I think because I tried to put on this mask and this persona, like everything was fine, um, 
I kind of got lost in, in my lie, if you know, if you can, if that makes sense. Um, I just kept telling myself that I was okay. So anyhow, I kept drinking and partying. I mean, we, we were using all kinds of stuff. I was 14 using shrooms, ecstasy. I mean, just everything under, under the sun. And then as I turned 15, that's when like, Pills were introduced, opioids, and that is when I kind of, I got hooked was to, to pills. But my justification was all the time was, all right, Caitlin, as long as you can keep your grades up, you're fine. You don't have a problem. You're in control of this, you know? And I did keep my, my grades up. And I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that to make people think it's okay to go use. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, it, cause that could be misinterpreted for that. Like, oh, okay, she kept her grades up, so I can do the same thing. No, that's not what I'm saying because ultimately I got completely addicted because of that, and I went down a long, horrible road that I don't wish anybody to go down. So um, honestly, I wish I had found some, a different way to fit in, a different way to be accepted, you know. But every time, you know, I, I just ended up in different party situations. Somebody broke something out, and I was up to try anything. I didn't want to be, you know, the uh, the person. I didn't want to be the buzzkill. So I'd be like, sure, let's do it. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, I just made it through high school. I played sports. Uh, I Actually, when I hit junior year, I quit playing sports because I got tired of trying to pass drug tests anymore. And so I feel like that was kind of like a red flag when if people were really looking deeper, maybe they did, maybe they did see it. And I just don't realize that. But for myself, that's whenever, whenever I started, when I quit doing the things that I love to do because of drugs, that should have been eye opening right there. But I would always justify it somehow. I was class president, right? I was most voted most likely to succeed. I was able to keep my grades up high enough to be able to become uh, valedictorian. I was able to give that speech. But I was high, man, the entire time. Like, it's just, it's unreal. Uh, I even went to, it's called governor's school. Have you ever heard of that? It's like a really prestigious school. That no, I haven't. It sounds yes. prestigious, though. Yeah, you got to, like, apply to go to it. And I think when I went, the last student that had went from Cherokee was, like, it had been 14 years before another person had, before I went. And, but, so I've done a lot, you know, I really did try to keep my head above water to make myself think that I had everything in control. Um, But I really didn't. So. Do you think um that, being so successful in your endeavors to hide everything made the fall that much harder? For certain. You know, um, you ask the question later on, you're just kind of like asking when did things start going bad. I relate it being good with being perfect. I was so scared of failure that the more that I succeeded in things, I felt like I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. I was doing what made people happy. I had, you know, my, through awards, through um, good grades, you know, I, I, I mean, of course you make your parents proud, but I had a very unhealthy relationship with that. Like, I, that's what my identity was 
involvement was the fact for me to be perfect. Because if I failed, then I felt like I was getting too vulnerable. You know, I couldn't let people see that I was weak. I had to be strong like my single mom. I had to be able to make, I had to be big sis to my little, you know, I had to show people like, you can't hurt me because so many people had have tried to hurt me through bullying and stuff like that. I, that was my protective mechanism. That was a way to protect myself was to make people think that number one, what you think you can say or do to me, that can't hurt me. Or number two, you know, I'm going to hurt myself before you have a chance to hurt me kind of deal. Yeah. I, I think that the, uh, that mentality that you're speaking of, like it's really prevalent on the reservation because I think personally, because of like the stoic Indian stereotype, you know, like as a male, you're supposed to just, nothing bothers you, you know, you're, you're okay. If it does bother you, you just suck it up and just keep going. And as a female, like you said, and I wanted to say this earlier, but I didn't want to cut you off like the normalization thing. Um, single parent homes are also normalized. Like, I didn't realize for myself that it was an anomaly until I got to school and I seen some of my friends. And by school, I mean college. I seen some of my friends go home to their mom and dad. And only then did I realize that, hey, everybody I know growing up, like, they grew up with, I mean, a single parent. So, so yeah. so for the women there, like it's also you got to, like you said, you got to be strong and not show emotions. Because I mean, if you do, who's going to take care of you and your kids? So I think that that is a big issue for. I know a lot of people, but especially like natives on reservations too, because like even though the reservations are named differently, they're pretty much the same as like the way that the structure is how. The trauma, the the generational trauma. Yeah, for sure. You know, that's what becomes normalized. And like, I mean, just to kind of piggyback off of what you just said, like you said it's normalized to to have to carry yourself a certain way and, and to not show emotions. But I think another unhealthy piece to that is like when you do show emotions, like it's just the response that you get here. It's not healthy. Like you see, like I'm sure the people you went to college with or that had families that had stuck together and was in healthy uh, households work, work through that. You were allowed to feel what you needed to feel. You were allowed to express your emotions. Here, it's it's a little different. It's like you're not supposed to talk about your problems. You're not supposed to cry. You need to be stronger than that. You're tough. Remember where, you know, like things like that. Those are the messages that we receive for sure. You're Cherokee. You're Cherokee. Be strong. Cherokee is yeah. strong. Look at everything we've gone through, right? From the Trail of Tears, boarding schools, all the way up to, you know, the atrocity in that and how, you know, like we're strong. We can pull through the adversity. But we were never taught like, hey, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay if you're not okay today. You know what I mean? And, and, I think that's too another reason why we try to appear tougher, like we have it, everything put together, I guess, if you will. Yes. Also, do you think, I, I remember you talking about the big money and the older sister and how y'all were riding around in this car and y'all were partying down. 
do you feel like that is also normalized on her is? Oh, for sure. It's, I think it's glamorized almost, you know, like, I mean, I mean, there's all kind of things. I could dive so deep into that. <laughs> like, I didn't grow up in a household where we were made to go to church. My dad's atheist and my mom's Baptist, which before, I'm not even sure she was Baptist whenever we were younger. <laughs> like, I got one side, my grandma's Jehovah's Witness, the other side are Mormons. I'm all over the board. <laughs> but I, I say all that to say, like, I've just seen... Okay, like my, so my, uh, our spiritual mentors, mine and Caleb, that's my husband for those who don't know, but our spiritual mentors, um, Ted's a pastor, his wife, you know, she's just, I'm pretty sure she went to, uh, like a Christian college, but like we see, we see them, right? And honestly, we look up to them so much as role models and just they're beautiful people. They have been such lights in our lives. Um, and it, I, I know so many times I have seen their family and just heard stories and then I sit back and I'm like, man, what we went through was not right. <laughs> like what we experienced is not normal. Well, I shouldn't say right. I guess I should say it was not, that's not normal. You know, like no child should have to experience the things that they, a lot of children have to experience here. And so just hearing other family members like that, I'm like, man, I definitely did not grow up in a, in a, in a household like that. And, and it almost makes you like yearn for it in a sense, or like it makes you question like, man, what would things have been like if it, if it looked differently? Now I know other people can grow up in a household where their family, you know, they are raised in the church and still turn out the same way. But I'm just saying like the character traits that I try to walk in now, like with my faith, I didn't know all that when I was younger. You know, I didn't know anything about that. And so. I turned to the glamorization of selling drugs. That's what I thought was cool or partying. You know, I turned to the glamorization of having money and flipping that money and listening to just off the wall stuff at 14 years old. I, some of the stuff I was singing, what in the heck? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just, that's real though. And, and you're right. It is normal here. Um, I don't know. That's a huge regret of mine. It's my big money. I wish I'd done something better with it. It it set me up. It completely set me up to be able to make a lot of choices that aligned with the soil that I was in at the moment, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah. I just wasn't in good soil, man. Yeah, I've noticed that... uh... The saying came to mind that says, you know, sin always finds a way. You might have, uh, there have been times where I didn't know where I was going to get high or I was going to get money to get high or I didn't, I was short on my re-up or something like that, but somehow something happened, you know. Every time. <laughs> That's what yeah. that made me think of. But now, yeah. uh, you've described your, your childhood, how you grew up, you were valedictorian, you, you were, on the surface, it would seem like the the perfect kid, you know, but you were getting high and stuff. Um, I want to ask you, you said there were red flags. Uh, when did you realize you had a problem? Um, have you ever overdosed? 
Um, have you been to jail or prison or rehab? Can you describe to me your situation at its worst? Rock bottom moment, maybe. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that, I mean, when things started going bad for me was, um, straight up when I turned 18, you know, I got that 18 mentality or, you know, that mentality of like, I'm 18 years old. I'm ready. I'm an adult now. You know, <laughs> you can't tell me nothing. <laughs> and I, I, I moved out the day I turned 18. But I also was dating an older guy. So, and I'm not sharing this piece of my story to blame him either. Um, but this is my story. This was a piece of it. I was in a very unhealthy relationship with an older man. And it was who was addicted, experienced his own traumas. And um, so we matched perfectly pretty much in that you know like uh chaos of chaos or he was my you know he's my gasoline to my fire so um we dated for nearly five years and that was just a really bad time in my life I, I you know I just graduated um I had decided so my dream school was to go to Chapel Hill I've always been a Carolina fan ever since I was little. My dad, he's a pukey fan. He's a dookie fan. So we always was a split household, button heads during basketball games. But uh, so that was my dream school. And I honestly, I probably could have went had I applied, um, but I'd, I'd never applied. I actually ended up just applying to Western because, I, number one, I was in that relationship. I didn't want to leave the guy that I was with. Number two, I wanted to – I knew that if I went off to school somewhere, I wouldn't be close enough to my drugs because I started using pills when I was 15, right? So gradually, over time, like, it just got worse and worse. I started waiting tables when I was 14, so I always had money. And so, yeah, I just – uh decided to quit school I went to Western for like a semester not I didn't even finish my first semester um it eventually got to where I was just too pill sick man to get up and go to class I withdrawals are terrible it makes they make you sweat they make you I mean it's so cringy like you just feel like your bones are hurting and there's nothing you can do to get that pain away it makes you feel like your skin's crawling and so Imagine going through all that, trying to get up and go to school at eight o'clock in the morning. It just wasn't happening anymore. And I, I didn't have anything. Like I, I thought I was an adult. I was like, oh, I'll just, you know, I'm not going to go back. I'll, I'll start back next semester. And that was always like a, that was a continuing thought that I would always have. Whenever that semester passed by, I would tell myself, oh, you'll go, you'll go in the fall semester or you'll go the next semester. And it just kept going like that. And that semester never came. Um, so after I dropped out of school, um, mind you, I, I'm so connected. I find like my total self worth and value is in my schoolwork. And so when I dropped out, that was a really big point for me. Uh, because I was so washed over with such shame and I felt like I was such a failure. You know, I was voted most likely to succeed, not most likely to fail, you know? <laughs> so yeah. 
I was just really disappointed in myself. I felt like I had really disappointed my family because and my community, my teachers. Like I felt like everybody had such high hopes for me, and I, I gave up. You know, I just. Well, at the time, though, I didn't feel like I gave up because I still was using those justifications, you know. And then every time I'd be like, well, I'm going to go back to school. Something else would come up like, well, now you got your big money. Now you're selling drugs. Now you're trying to be kingpin in Turkey. And I really thought that I was. (laughs) I really walked around like that was a badge of honor for myself. Um, But. And so when I ran out of my big money, you know, um, I was still with the guy. And, um, well, afterward, yeah, after I ran out of big money, that's whenever I started, like, uh, stealing. I really just, I mean, I couldn't work anymore. I had got fired from my job um, for taking money. I was, it's just, the addiction had just grown to be too much to to have any ounce of integrity anymore, like the the core values, the core beliefs that I held true to, like integrity and honesty and things like that, they just go out the window. And so, like, I started thieving. You know, I was living and laying my head down anywhere where someone would let me. Uh, me and the guy that we that I was with, um, you know, selling drugs, uh, just t- trying to take a shower wherever I could, um, and. There was a time whenever we went, or I got arrested in Waynesville, and the guy did not show up for me. He did not hold me down. And that kind of broke the last straw. Mind you, I'd already broken all tight, like burnt the bridges with my family, um, had already hurt them repeatedly over and over. And so that time was when I finally had enough courage to leave the guy, but that was that was like when things spiraled out of control because I went and hung out with people that I was in the jail with. I did not need to be in jail, man. I need, it's like Jelly Roll said on that podcast. Like I needed a hug. <laughs> like I love that part when he says that. I'm like, I feel you Jelly Roll. Like I needed a hug. I needed someone to tell me that I was worth more than what I was living, but that's not what I received. You know, I got through in jail and, uh, I mean, I committed the crime, so I got through in jail and met a bunch of girls who was all into to mess and started, got out. And instead of calling someone to take me back to Cherokee, I called them and knew they had some dope. So started using, and that's whenever I, I lived over there for a little while, just bouncing from place to place. And then with complete strangers, man, like legit white people. And that is so, like... You know I completely lost myself whenever you're a native just bouncing place to place <laughs> surrounded by black people. No offense, no offense to anyone. Like I don't I'm not racist or nothing like that. I'm just I guess if you're a native, you know, if you know, you know. <laughs> Couch surfing in the suburbs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Living on the higher levels, man. <laughs> um but so uh, yeah, after that, it just really got out of control. I was stealing. I was just doing things, going in and out of jail. I did end up going to prison um, for selling drugs. I had got uh, convicted of drug trafficking. Um, I was stealing cars. That was a really, I still have like a lot of regret about that because 
that's a tough thing for me to kind of work through too being in recovery is just some of the damage that I've done in my past and and now being who I am I'm like dang I wish I wish there's a way I don't know but anyways I stole someone's car and ended up wrecking it because I I was so high out of my mind and just not making rational decisions and ended up breaking both the bones in my lower leg so now I, I fractured my back Ended up waking up in, in a mission, which is a hospital over in Asheville. And they had to put a metal, they had to do emergency surgery on myself or on my leg, put a metal rod in there. And I like left this crime scene, bro. Like I had two, both the bones of my leg was broken. And I just like picked that up and was like, paid somebody some dope to try to get me out of there. And was like legit not gonna let anyone take me to the hospital because I was like I'm gonna get arrested. I probably got warrants on me because I stole that car riding around with a broken leg. Like that, it's usually just it's just crazy some of the decisions that you make whenever you're on drugs and in in addiction. And you know, like even then, that wasn't that wasn't my lowest point. I mean, I don't know. I think that it's all my lowest point, really. I don't think that. I think it's all an accumulation. I had I had years that was my lowest point, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, but, I understand. Because I still kept using after that, you know. I knew, you know what my first thought was whenever that happened? I told myself, you're going to get pain pills for the rest of your life, Caitlin. That's crazy. Like, not thank God I'm alive. Not thank, you know, thank you, Jesus, for for freaking looking out for, you know, whatever. Like, not being thankful for still being alive or trying to call my family to let them know where I was at. The first thought that I had was I was going to be hooked up and be able to go to a pain clinic. But that's the real thought, the memoirs of an addict, you know? Ah, that's so crazy. Um, yeah, that yeah, is, uh, I would say that that's very typical. Like, and in the moment you were thinking, probably thinking to yourself, like, man, I got free drugs for the rest of my life. My drug of choice at that. I'm set. I ain't even got to, I ain't even got to sell drugs no more. I ain't got to steal no more. I ain't got to, well, that's, of course, you start to think those things, but it's never enough. Even if I'd had my own script, that wouldn't have been enough, you know? Like, we just need more and more and more. That's the that's the sick part of our brain is commanding us. Like, you literally have to beat your brain to be able to overcome this. So, yeah, I ended after that, I got right out of the hospital, kept selling. Um, and like I said, I ended up getting busted for trafficking uh trafficking pills and, and meth, a lot of meth, and ended up going to prison. Um, when I got out of prison, um, man, it was just bad. Like, I I can't, you know, I. it's so crazy because you feel like if you're missing out, like, you know, like when you, you don't want to sleep because you feel like you're missing out, that's how it was for me. Like, when I got out of prison, I was like, I can't be missing out on, I got FOMO. I was like... Everybody's having fun out there, you know, like I'm I'm deprived. I three days after being out of prison felt deprived and I should be able to go out and have fun with my friends and hang out. So um yeah, it just got bad again that quickly. I was only out for three weeks after that and uh it was bad, man. Like 
just bouncing from place to place, taking a shower wherever somebody would let me. I mean, shoot, if it meant missing out on a sale or a re-up, I was going to skip that shower. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that designer perfume to spray on, huh? <laughs> I it, yeah, that I done trade at somebody for. Uh, <laughs> one time my mom showed up at food line. She had my perk out check. And, of course, the first thing she said was, the bondsman's been calling me. And I was like, and? And she said, I said, first, I said, did you cash my check? And she's like, yeah. I said, well, are you going to give it to me? She said, yeah, but you better go pay that bondsman. No, and dang well I wasn't going to go pay that bondsman. And, like, at first she was holding on to my check for or my, she cashed it for me and had my envelope of money. And I was so high, man. God, I was so high. Like, um, I had just used before I got there. And she, like, I got in the car and she had the doors locked and like I started feeling like she wasn't going to give me my money and I was like fidgeting around. I was like, Ma, I said, are you going to give me my check? And she was like, please, Caitlin, go to treatment. Like begged me, crying, had me crying. She's like, please go to treatment. I was like, no, I can't. I'm not going to treatment. Give me my money. And she handed me my money, and I bolted out of that car like I she was going to freaking, like, take it back from me or something. And I snatched it out of her hand and went running across the parking lot. <laughs> Mom said she'd never seen me get gone so fast. It's just, you, I'm not that person anymore, you know? It's wild just even sitting here and talking back on some of that stuff. Um, so... That was during the three weeks that I was out, and when I got arrested again, uh, I knew, I knew then, like, I knew before I got arrested that time, I knew that I didn't want to use anymore. I was, uh, I can remember one time, I was, like, nodded out, and uh, mind you, by this point, the only thing that was around when I got out of prison was heroin. And so you just adapt when it, when whatever evolves, you, you evolve with it. And so I just started using heroin and, um, I remember crying, uh, actually I had, this was like two days before I got arrested the last time, two days before that I was up at a trap house somewhere. I always went, knew I could be safe, knew nobody was going to bother me. Because everybody, like, I treated people good when I had drugs, so I knew, like, if I fell asleep, I'd be okay there. So I used that morning, overdosed, woke up in the tub. My friend, he was, like, crying, and he was, like, he, so my nickname was Red. My nickname still is Red. That's actually, um, I've been called Red since I was little. My dad still calls me Red, so... When people call me red, it's okay. But anywho, they were like, red, red, woke me up, got me back, and uh, they were crying. And they were like, please, like, you got to stop. Like, don't use anymore, please, you're going to die. And I was like, okay, okay, I'm alone. And it was later that evening, I was sitting there, and I was crying, Jack, as I was sticking that needle in my arm because I knew, like, my heart. In my heart, I was like, I didn't want to use, but my brain, my brain was too powerful, and I, I was not able to overcome, and and I used, and I overdosed again, twice in one day. And then it was two days later, um, 
Dang, that actually the whole the that night with me and you was just a few days before that. <laughs> Come over there and got that jacked up tattoo. <laughs> that was all in the same week, man. <laughs> Anywho, dang put you on the spot in it. We have me and Jack go way back. We have used we have we're definitely in uh in the debt together. <laughs> but um they could have did a Rico sweep on us, probably. I would imagine. Oh, for sure, absolutely. I'm surprised. Actually, the, now that you mentioned that, that was a really, that was a really bad time in my life too. Like a whole ring of what I was mixed up in. They, they all, some are still in prison now. And yeah, man, I, I'm so surprised that I did not get caught up like with something like that, Ricoed, and uh, but. Anywho, um, so yeah, I went to jail two days later. Uh, I had court for a probation violation. I went in and no, it was an old, it was an old charge. They'd let me out of prison and didn't know I had that. It was an FTA, but anywho, um, I had, they striked that FTA, went back to court and I was 10 minutes late and the judge, um, I was thinking, you know, oh, he's going to let me come back after break. He kept me in the front. I had to go back to a holding cell. He brought me back up. Kirk Sanuke. <laughs> and instead of uh, just striking and allowing me to be heard for that day, he doubled my bond to $180,000. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, even my re-up money that I had on me, I was like, that ain't near enough. So, I just. Came to terms with it, man, and knew that I was going to be sitting down for a minute. Um, I knew, I really did, deep down in my soul, that if I did not do something different, I was going to die to using drugs. I was so close already. And honestly, at that time, I kind of just was like, had this mentality, like, this is the way I'm going to go. This is what my life has become. This is what it what it is and I'm just going to end up dying to this and that's just that was my purpose <laughs> um so anyways I, I go to jail right and uh there was this jailer um I think you had asked that question was like was there someone you know that kind of made a difference or I can't remember was there a person or a circumstance that was a catalyst for change yeah, how, yeah. So if, if they helped you out, how did they help you out? And like, what's the first steps that you took to get from that uh, place of where you let your addiction become your identity, you know, and you're kind of like in these endless cycles. Uh, what, what was the first step that you took to get from that place to where you are now? And like, is, was there a person that helped you or was there a circumstance or a situation? You know, what's your reason, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so whenever, okay, right there towards the end, the last time, like, I had just got out of prison. I went to jail for that FTA. When I went to jail, it was just a couple, like, it. I think I bonded out, honestly, uh, like a couple days later. Because uh, I still had my perk cap, and so I had somebody come come get me. Um, but while I was in there for that couple of days, I had met this guy. Uh, he's an officer at the Cherokee Detention Center, or he was. Anywho, um, his name's Ian, and uh, 
I didn't know him, honestly. Like, before we met that day, he introduced himself, and he was like, you know, he said, I, I think he's my sister's age. He kind of grew up in, in that age group. But he said, he was like, I remember you. He said, I remember whenever you were, you know, you graduated valedictorian. I remember just how, you know, how happy of a person you used to be. And he was like, man, you can come, you can come out of this. Like, you're too smart to be coming through these jails. You should get your life together. And honestly, like, that was a, and I can't say that he's the only one that's ever done that for me. I've had in a couple other jails, I've had some really amazing people that tried to pour into me, but it's almost one of those things like, you know, like I feel like God's always calling out to us, but we, we're just, we don't, we're not in a place to receive it or we're not willing to hear it, you know? And so, I've had other officers that really stand out to me that I'm super thankful for, but it's like hindsight's 2020, right? Like now I'm able to have appreciation for those moments. And like, I have so many different full circle moments that have happened in my life where I've been able to give appreciation to those people for trying to pour into me and seeing something that I could not see in myself at the time. Right. And that's what Ian did for me that time was he really, like for the first time in such a long, long time, I felt like I was seen. Like instead of him, him being somebody that was trying to like push me further down, like he actually was trying to, to build me up. Um, so that was kind of what made a ripple effect in my life because then the second time, or like when I came back the last day that I, every time I was arrested, February 8th, 2017 <laughs> thanks bro I, dates are starting to get mixed up with me now that the further along i get but so that day, <laughs> yeah, that day was the last day that you know i ever used heroin uh you know i got sitting down to the jail i ate what i had because i always had something on me and that was it i was just done and um you know, Ian comes through there again, and he was like, dang, great, like, dang, Caitlin, you're back in here. Like, I thought I told you, get out and do better. You can do this. And so for four months, and for four months I was in there, and he was always coming through. They ended up activating uh, my time. I had the, I think I had like six months uh, mandatory jail time. I had to get out on an ankle monitor for six months. And then after that, I had two more years of supervised probation. And in the moment, I was like, sure, you know, just hopeful that I would get out. And I really had no intentions at the time when I got sentenced, like I would quit. But for four months, I heard something different, you know, like Ian would uh, pour into me. And uh, I had a friend that I, we, we had got, we had run around in addiction together. She got arrested too. She got put in wellness court and. She was doing really good. She got out. She didn't have to do mandatory jail time, but she did really well in her program, man. Like, she did all the things. Uh, and so when I would call her, like, instead of calling the plugs, instead of calling all the other people that I used to hang out with, I was calling her. And we had formed such a bond and addiction together that, like, I don't know, like, I just, I trusted her, you know? And so, like, 
for the first time in a long time, I heard her talking about, uh, I'm going to church with my family. I'm going over to my family's house to eat. Well, I'm going to this NA meeting. I'm, I got, you know, I'm going to meet people for dinner. Then we're going to do this. And I was like, man, like I really miss that part of life. Like I miss like just the simplicity of it. I feel like is what I miss. And, uh, to this day, I, I think that God speaks to us through people. Like I think there are many times in my story where God was trying to speak to me. I just wasn't listening. And for once, I finally heard some, you know, heard him. I feel like he was speaking through her to me. And I made a promise. I made a promise when I was in jail. I was like, she asked me to make a promise. And I was like, okay, this is somebody I trust. This is somebody that we've been through the depths of hell together in and I said all right I'll make you that promise and nobody had ever asked me to do that before like usually it's like other than my family but usually you know people are like oh come on let's get high together are you sure you don't want none but for once I actually heard someone say like do better you know and the other I always share this part of my story too the other underlying factor was um you know there was this one day I had to get taken out to the front of the um, the booking office, and uh, the sergeant at the time, you know, they they would all crack jokes on me, but uh, like they used to call me the drug mule because they knew half, you know, I always got through an automatic lockback because they always figured I had something on me, which they weren't, you know, they were they on were me, <laughs> yeah, um, but. He took me up to the booking area that day, and he grabbed my face sheet. And when he read my face sheet, he was like, Caitlin Hope. And he laughed, and he was like, more like Caitlin Hopeless. And that was hard. Like, that was a really hard moment for me because I knew what brokenness was, right? Like, I I knew what that felt like I was living it but when he said that to me whoo it just lit a fire under my butt and I was like okay I'm gonna show y'all I'm gonna show y'all something different and you're not gonna see me come back through this door and that wasn't the first time I ever said that but for I mean they dang sure didn't see me come through that door again the next time he seen me we were both working together at the Cherokee Hospital (laughs) so he didn't see me come back through the doors. Uh, I mean, man, like that just, I knew what that was. Like that just crushed me and I was tired of being pushed down even further. And I feel like that's such a problem in today's society is that stigma. You know, it is the, the, um, what, what you see in people, right? right their circumstance. And, and I experience this all the time at work. You know, I only see, sometimes we only see what's on the surface, right? We only see what picture is presented in front of us. But if we would take time to actually sit down and talk with people and to hear their story, to hear some of the things that they've gone through and endured, you might be like, holy crap, no wonder you're drinking like a, like you are. Holy crap, no wonder it's so hard for you to say no. Like, it just, it helps you to have compassion and empathy for people. And the last thing that we need to be doing is pushing people further down. I mean, that just doesn't do anything to help matters. 
Yeah, I agree 100% with that. I feel like there's enough of negativity in the world that you don't need to push people down, but especially people that, you know, although there's some people who say that, I don't know anybody who's getting high just because they like it. You know what I mean? Everybody's Mm -hmm. trying to, they're trying to run from their pain, escape their reality or any of that. So if somebody's already in a position where there is so much pain or trauma or anything that they're having to escape from it, you really shouldn't push that person down because I mean, it's like pushing it to rock. Yeah. It's just like, there's just help filling the hole that they're stuck in with dirt, you know? Yeah. Like if they're coming up a hill, like it's like you're putting water on it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. You're just making the the obstacles for them to even try to get help even that much more difficult. And it's just unnecessary. Like, I don't know. And I know it's hard for people that have been hardened to it, but I I just don't think that as human beings that we're supposed to be treating people that way, Um, no matter their circumstance, you know? I mean... I don't know. It's just, I have a different outlook on everything now. I'm thankful for where I am at today in life uh, because it has helped me to become a more compassionate person and loving person, no matter where the people are at, even in the midst of their darkness. You know, I try not to be so judgmental. Um, It's harder to do when it's people that hit closer to home, you know, when it's your family. You're too close. yeah, it hits. Yeah, it hits really deep, and you you lose the ability to be able to to like not want to, and not I guess have judgment, but it's just like I mean I think he cares so much that it just yeah, and and and, and you're safer with people, so you feel like you can say whatever the heck you want to say. <laughs> But, um, so yeah, I was in jail when I finally got out, I was on the ankle monitor. I don't know if that's what truly helped me. It, I couldn't go anywhere for the first month. Like I was on total lockdown. I can't even ride to go get something to eat. They did not want me. I can't even go to a recovery class. That's how much they didn't want me leaving my house. But the probation officer I had, she was really cool. Like I'd been on her with her previously and never never completed uh probation and so like you during times like that you got to build up that trust again that's with anybody any kind of relationship whether it's with the court system whether it's with your family whether it's with your friends you know like you you got to start building that trust back up because we you know we kind of built a reputation for ourselves and so finally they did let me start going places um but i could only go to NA meetings, AA meetings, or um, utilize the services at our local behavioral health center, uh, Anna Lanisky. So I signed up for SAT classes. And honestly, man, it was just like a way to get out of my house. I'd just be completely honest. And I, that was my motivating factor. I don't care what somebody's motivating factor is. If it gets you in there, Bye, guys. If I'm all for it. Like, however you get there is what is my motto. Um, and so <clears throat> I started attending the SAT classes. And, shoot, I was, you know how the saying that they say in the rooms, like, that 
you should do 90 meetings in 90 days. I feel like I did 180 meetings in 90 days because, <laughs> like, I just needed to be out and with people. And, you know, the famous the famous uh, quote by, what is his name? I'm going to butcher it, so I'm not even going to try it. But he says the opposite of addiction is connection. I believe in that. I needed to be connected with people that were in different kind of soil. I needed to be connected with people that were like-minded, trying to do better. And honestly, like when I first started going, I didn't even really want to be there. I just wanted to get out of the house. So I was just like, whatever, this is weird. Like, why am I even here? And I just felt like I was forced to be there. But eventually it changed. Like, I felt like it was something I had to do until it finally changed into something that I wanted to do. Like, I truly wanted to change. And so I just, I committed, man. Just as hard as I went in addiction, that's as hard as I went in recovery, you know. Anything that I could do that was recovery-oriented, I did that, Um, which helped to create a community. And I finally felt accepted. You know, (laughs) like, then it's the craziest thing because it is because, you know, like, oh, we're connected because we have trauma. Yay. (laughs) But I don't know. Like, I just felt like I was finally around people that had an understanding for what I was struggling with and that I just wasn't a horrible person, that the drugs had taken over my life and that I really was the person that I was always destined to be, you know, um, the drugs changed me, you know, I thought I was this hardened thug, if you will. But, and so I had to have a heart change, man. And so like a, another piece of my story is like, um, well, I started dating the guy who's now my husband <laughs> and he was very, it was funny. He was just all about God. And like I said, I'd never been exposed to that. Um, not really, just maybe here and there. Like, there's almost a form of punishment for me, though. Like, anytime I went back home, my mom, she had all these, like, rules and standards I had to meet. And she'd be like, one of them was you had to go to church on Sundays. And I hated that. Well, because sometimes I go in there and I felt like, I just felt like I was dirty and like I wasn't good enough to, to be loved by God or to be sitting there, you know, because I'd already done all the, made these mistakes, used drugs. I'd been living in such sin that I was too sin to be loved, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, too far gone. Yeah. And Caleb, it was funny. He would like, I'd get on my Facebook thing and I'd have a notification and be like, you have, you've been tagged, you and 99 other people have been tagged in a post. <laughs> And I was like, by Caleb McCoy, and I'd be like, oh, gosh, what Jesus thing has he tagged us in now? And sure enough, you know, but I need, I I don't know, I, I got curious. And so when we started dating, um, he wasn't even, like, really going to church. And one day I was just, one weekend, I finally was like, why haven't you asked me to go to church with you yet? I thought you were all into God and Jesus. Like, what is, I don't even, you know, like, what what is this? And he was like convicted and he was like, you're right. So we went, we started going to his granny's church and, uh, I rededicated my life to Jesus Christ. And, um, 
later on got baptized and, you know, just started really having a different understanding for where my healing come from than besides like the rooms, the NA meetings and things like that. Like I found out, I realized I had a piece, a foundational piece that was missing and, and which has helped me to just become a better person all, all around. Like I'm, I'm so much nicer. I'm more kind. You know, I'm able to, to love people and encourage them and just be positive. Um, because, because of my faith, you know, because I, I really do value um the characteristics the Christ like characteristics and how I carry myself and my spirituality is is so important to me. Um it's helped me to really figure out who I am and what my purpose is. Do you um do you consider that a foundational part of your recovery, your faith? Is there anything else besides your faith that has helped you? Oh, absolutely. Exercise, man. (laughs) (laughs) I am all about movement. I am, uh, you know, me and my, me and Kayla, we've done some wild things. Um, you know, I, I use, remember I talked about the wreck that I was in and the metal rod and everything. I had this metal rod in my leg and, you know, I, I use that as a crutch. For a long time um as to say like oh my gosh i used to walk around saying like i was like what was, what was that song you'll know it so does it say it? oh that's not my lint that's my gun walk or something because oh, yeah. <laughs> i had a limp because of my leg you know um but Caleb encouraged me, man, and I, I highly suggest and recommend to people, you know, to when you get in a relationship, find somebody that, you know, is, is going to encourage you to become a better version of yourself. Um, he did push me a lot. Uh, he encouraged me to just get on a treadmill one day. And, like, the first time I ran half a mile, I called him. I was so ecstatic and then ended up running 400 miles across the U.S. with him when he ran to Oklahoma. We, like, biked the Pacific Coast Highway. We've um, we've learned a lot, man. Like, you know, one of the things that um, you had asked was, like, what would you say has been the most influential thing for me that was being teachable? You know, I used to have a very rigid way of thinking, like, change is not good. Like, basically, like, if you, if you don't like who I am, then that's just too bad. Like, you should like, you should accept me for who I am and you should not push me to change. But I have a different way. I'm more open-minded about that. And, and that's because I, you know, remaining teachable. Like, I've allowed my mind to be open and exposed to new ideas. And because of that, I have a new outlook on life and what's important. Like even if I don't agree with someone, at least I'm we- willing to hear it and learn about it and make a decision from there. You know, I don't have to agree with things like that's the freedom of speech. Right. Um, I love to hear people's perspectives on things. Um, and <clears throat> anywho, so like that's how kind of like just listening to different podcasts, reading different books has been really uh, influential and in my journey, um, just because like 
that little adventurous part of me that I had forgotten about, like, who I was as a little girl. I'm a daredevil, man. Ask Caleb. I just out-jumped him on a cliff the other day. I shouldn't have done it, but it was like a 35-foot cliff. Like, we've been skydiving. I love, I've always loved doing things like that, like, things that seem scary and, like, impossible, but then I actually get out there and do it, and there's something that comes with that. Like, there's a piece of you that changes and grows that, I mean, until you experience that, like, I mean, I can't, I don't know, you, you... you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't ever attempt something that's outside of yourself. You're doing yourself a disservice because that's such an, an a huge opportunity to be able to learn and and of, of who you are, who who you who you are yourself, you know. So now, like we sign up for these really awesome um, competitions, uh, I, I just know how exercise you know i've done an iron man we've biked oh, i already said that biked across the pacific coast highway uh, i love crossfit you know like i love the community i love the fellowship that comes along with that but also like it helps me with my stress man like the wellness wheel right how are you doing physically how are you doing emotionally how are you doing mentally how are you doing spiritually all of that stuff is intertwined and so the the idea is to have balance, right? But I just know how important exercise has completely changed my life. Like the pieces of me that were broken, the pieces of me that were bullied when I was a little girl, the sexual trauma, those pieces. Like when I exercise, like I I, I develop such low self esteem and insecurities no self-worth, no value, like inadequacies because of that, because of those, those difficulties I experienced as a kid. And so like exercise just helps me to bring it all together, I guess, like to put those broken pieces back together. It helps me with my confidence. It helps me to grow like during those moments when I want to quit and I want to give up, but I find, well, I lean on God for strength, but I also find this piece of me that I never knew was inside of there. You know, like I had this new belief that I can go out there and conquer the world, man. And it's crazy how exercise has helped me to do that because it like pours out into every facet of my life. Like whether that's at work, whether that's in my personal relationships, whether that's it with my upcoming dreams, hopes in the future, like with the transition that I'm about to move into, like working out has helped me to believe in myself and to know like with some hard work and effort, you're unstoppable. Like you could do anything. And, And that goes for anybody that is listening to this. Like if you're not healthy, what, I mean, what are you even getting into recovery for? You know, like we've done such damage to our bodies. Why? Why, what are you going to, um, and, and that's, you know, that's the truth. Like when I first got in recovery, I was eating bean burritos and freaking tacos all the time, going to meetings and eating donuts and smoking cigarettes. And I'm not trying to pass judgment on anybody, but I can, I can't do it. That's not healthy, man. And I wanted to be around, you know, why escape death? Like we have not to take care of our, our bodies. Uh, I think, you know, I think it's important that we do that because it helps us mentally and emotionally as well. It helps me with triggers. I mean, every time I've been so triggered, 
I lace my running shoes up and I take off running down the road. <laughs> and I come back and whenever I feel better, I'm like, All right, I made it. I got through that, you know. It's been it's been a, a huge foundation to my life. And I was gonna mind. ask you I was gonna ask you in a second, um, but you kinda already um answered them. Like if you had if you could Tell yourself one thing in the height of your active addiction. What would that be? And also, if there's someone listening today that's struggling in active addiction, do you have any advice for them? And lastly, if there's somebody, a family member of a loved one, because, you know, addiction affects more than just the person using. I, I dare say it might even affect the people around you just as much as it affects you. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any advice for someone who has a family member or knows somebody that they care about that's struggling with addiction? Yeah. So if I forget to answer one, just don't, you know, feel free to right. remind. So <laughs> if I could go back and tell me the per was that the first question? The person yeah. that I was who was struggling, I would I would just tell myself like, Caitlin, you know, you don't have to keep running. You don't have to keep running from the inadequacies. You don't have to keep running from the disappointment, the hurts, the trauma, the failure. You don't have to keep hiding. That's not yours to carry. You're a, you have permission to let it go. Also, one of the biggest regrets that I ever had, you know, coming through my my uh, journey was not allowing myself to be vulnerable sooner. And, and telling somebody that, hey, I needed help. Hey, I, I don't have things figured out. I don't, you know, I'm not managing this. I don't have control. And that's okay, you know. And I, I think I, I would also just tell myself some of the things that I, you know, like, like you are worthy. You know, you you have permission to let go of some of these things. You know, you have permission to... To not have to carry the burden of, of those things because it wasn't your fault. Um, and that you, it doesn't make you any less of a human being. Like you still, you still have purpose walking that, you know? Um, what would I tell somebody? I would just. Would you tell them the same thing you told yourself? Or would that, was that more personalized for you because you know you and as you've. It, it was a little more personalized for me, I guess, because, I mean, you know, I just struggle with, like, experiencing sexual trauma, things like that. Like, I don't, that's not everybody's story. But I think I, I would say some of those things, like, hey, you're worthy. Hey, you know, you don't have to keep hiding from whatever you're hiding from. Because um, I do think that that's what drugs are, is it's a way to self-medicate and feel whatever void you know, and that's what I would tell somebody like you, you have permission to not be okay, but you also have permission to let that go. And I would just encourage somebody like, I think that's a big one too, is just allowing people in to help. Because, you know, we, we don't trust people, you know, it's hard for us to allow people in. It's harder for us to let people see our, our, it's like letting someone see you in your underwear, you know, like it's, it's that that messiness, like that 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 darkness, 
Uh, it's okay, baby. Let me let me sit here with, with you know. Let me sit here in it with you <laughs> because I'm familiar with darkness, and you don't have to do this alone. Uh, I think that's the biggest message that I would tell people is that you know, like I'm not trying to say I know what you're going through, but I'm familiar with darkness, and so you don't have to do this alone. You don't have to. I, I'll sit in it with you if that's what we got to do. Um. To the other people, oh, and I would just, you know, I mean, I would tell people that with the loved ones, um, you know, that's something that I struggle with sometimes is like the uh, survivor's guilt. Like whenever I share about how I made it out, especially when others have lost people, like I get really, I get in my head about it sometimes. You know, it's not fair and, and I can't make sense out of it. It's But it's not up to me. Who makes sense out of it, you know? Yeah. Um, one thing that's kind of helped me to get through that was, like, I've had people reach out to me, like, people who've lost loved ones and tell me that I give them hope or have helped them in some way. And that's what helps me to know, like, the power of hope through sharing story. Um, you know, our stories can be a key that unlocks someone else's prison really. That's why it's important for us to, to speak life and to speak our words and to speak our bigger truth but i would just say to people who have family members that are being affected by this not even just family members because ultimately like our community members are being affected police officers the ones who have to arrest us the jailers you know who see us constantly coming back in the revolving door uh the the people at the er the people at the health centers like they see they're affected as well you know like I mean, the people I work with, the people on my caseload, like, they're, I'm not related. I probably am related to some of them, but, <laughs> um, what I'm trying to say is like, they're not my close family and, but I'm affected. Their choices and their decisions and their lifestyle that they're making right now affects me. Like, I, I cry at night sometimes. Like, I'm, I, my heart breaks. I, I'll come home from work and just cry or leave somebody's house and, you really don't know how it's affecting other people, the people in the court systems, you know, the people who are having the Narcan people in, in the ambulance, the paramedics, like how it affects so many more people than we realize. The biggest thing that I would just tell them is like, I mean, my motto is love God and love people, right? So how can we do that more? How can we be a light to someone else? How can we show them love? Sometimes it's not always with our words. Sometimes that's, a, you know, just a simple hug. Hell, how do you, when's the last time you don't know that person might have been hugged? You know, they're so engulfed in their shame and their their difficulties that you know like I've had people who hadn't had showers and I'm like I don't care come here I'm gonna hug you because I just feel like you need a hug you know sometimes it's not always with a word sometimes it's with our actions um just being a light in someone's life and and don't don't give up on them like I know it's hard but if you got someone struggling and that's your baby you message them and you tell them that you love them and that you're thinking about them and just keep doing that keep doing that over and over and over because god forbid if there ever comes a day where you can't send that message i hope not but the reality is sometimes the outcomes are what 
jails, institutions, or prison, prisons, or death. So reach out to them and don't ever give up on them. Always instill some little seed, some little seed of hope, because hopefully that would be watered. Yes, hope, uh, hope, I agree. Oh, I'm sorry to cut you off. Go no, you're good. You're good. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, the story um, the story has the power to, you know, inspire hope and change. And it makes it's a twofold effect. I feel like it helps the storyteller and the listener. They form ties whenever the listener hears something that he might have thought nobody else done. Or she thought that she was the only person on earth that could do that. And... And part of that story is, you know, like, you've told me everything, and I know some of this stuff's hard to rehash. I I know you can get emotional just, you know, reliving it in your head, but the other part of the story is I want to hear about now, like, how many days do you have clean? Have you um, reconnected with your family and friends? Uh, Have you went back to school? Have you, what's your current occupation? Like, who are you now? (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm the amazing Kate one. <laughs> I say that because there was a time in my life when I could not say that. So I think it's important for us to remember just what miracles we are. I, this is my favorite part, man. So this is the hope right here is to share just how, how, what's happening now. So I reconnected with my family. I am. Man, see Danela he I have it tattooed on my arm. It, it covers up one of my track marks. It's the first tattoo I got when I got out of uh when I first got into recovery and that's just my it means family. That's the biggest reason, you know, that kept me wanting to do recovery was to be able to be anti. You know, I have three friggin' awesome uh nephews and and a brand new niece and I, they're just so cool and me being able to, to be out there with them, playing with them and, and hearing them like want Auntie Caitlin around, like that's the best. Uh, you know, I have my family back. I have my, my parents. They're extremely proud of me. Um, my grandparents, um, so it's a blessing. I'm blessed, man. My life is, is so blessed. Uh, I got married. I have two stepsons. Um, one of them we have a relationship with. So that's not my story to tell, you know, but um, I'm just thankful that, you know, I, I get to be a stepmom. Um, he's he's a really good kid. It's, that's been that's been a cool change to, to go through that because I, I love him to death. Uh, so it, it's it's awesome being able to do football games and stuff like that. Uh, oh, well, I, and my other nieces and nephews on my husband's side, we have like 25 now, <laughs> but, uh, no, there's a bunch of them, but I mean, just doing stuff with them. We're getting ready to go on a family vacation, man. First time we've ever done that. And, you know, we're pri- trying to prioritize things like that. Um, so I, I, did go back to school. I just recently graduated with my associate's degree in applied uh, science. And I went in the human services department to be able to uh, work work in the field, man, work in the behavioral health field. 
I also got a certificate during that time for specifically addiction studies. So I, I literally just graduated from that in, uh, in May. So that was really cool. Um, that was a good full circle moment. I, I really, you know, going to school has given me a lot of confidence back, not necessarily like my identity, but it just feels good to be able to, to really apply myself to something. And I, you know, look at it in a different perspective as far as like taking my time and being okay with that. Like if I got a B, it's nothing to like destroy me. <laughs> um, Let's see. I work as a peer support specialist. Peer support specialists are freaking amazing. It's the only job where you can go in there and say I've been to prison. And it's like, that's like the gold nugget to get you in. No, <laughs> the more like trauma and stuff, like addiction stuff, <laughs> they're like, oh, okay, yes, we want you. We need you. It's awesome. Like you have lived experience. It's a job where that's so needed because you're able to go uh, and make these special connections with people because they, they know, like they can relate, you know, they know that when they say something, you have a, a deeper understanding because you've been there. And so uh, it's been my most absolute favorite job I've ever had. Um me and my husband, we have started a nonprofit organization called Res Hope Recovery and Consulting. Um, we have been in the process since before COVID to try to open up a men's transitional living home. Um, we had a vision. Well, Caleb had a vision a long time ago. And we just like legit with two people fresh in early recovery. I was like, I've heard, always heard get out a vision board and write the stuff down. So we did that one night, wrote it down and formed this nonprofit and decided we wanted to flip a trap house into a men's transitional home. So we started doing that. Uh started doing a lot of community work, you know, like feeding people within the community. COVID kind of like threw a wrench and all that, kind of stopped it. And honestly, man, I just kind of lost sight with COVID happening, school and work. I felt just really too busy which I hate saying that because really I should should have been pouring more effort and time into that. But I feel like it's God's time. And really, like, I think that things are happening now the way that they're supposed to have been happening. I feel like if I would have got that years ago handed to me, I don't know that I would have been able to sustain it like I, I, I envisioned. Um and I just have more experience. I have uh, more confidence about myself. I just have a, a better perspective on life to be able to, that's going to help me to, to be able to get this place opened. Um, actually this, this week's my last week with the hospital. It's bittersweet. Um, you know, I've really, I've really built some, some bonds with people and, and really strong connections with people, but I know that God, laid this on our heart for a reason and so we just gotta we just gotta step fully into that and honestly I've been scared you know I've been letting every excuse get in the way fear feeling inadequate feeling like who the heck do I think I am to be able to be a program coordinator over this place and listening to the lies man and so I finally I heard something on a podcast one day and it really spoke to me and I was like I just need to to go full into this, step fully into this because now that I'm done with school, I don't feel like I'm being like, and we're getting grant funding. 
to be able to open the place up. So that's tremendous. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm 32 years old. I am six and a half years, over six and a half years into recovery now. <laughs> and I'm put in for a freaking grant and I'm, I'm getting, <laughs> it's just like mind blowing to me. The things that are starting to happen, you know, like the first time we got a $30,000 grant to do the uh, remodeling in the house. I was like, what the, do they even know who they're handing $30,000 to right now? Like six and a half years ago, what the heck? (laughs) So, I mean, I just, I love my people, man. I love, uh, you know, I, I have a heart to serve people. I have a heart to help people along their journey. You know, uh, a big core piece is going to be fit, faith, and nutrition in our place. Uh, we're going to have this curriculum, Addict to Athlete. So it's, it's going to be good. Like, I'm trying to instill, like, long-term changes in, in people. Like, we have so many different visions for this. Like, we want people to experience something outside of the qual boundary, you know? I want people to be doing service work. I want people to just see that there's more to life the way that we have and and you know you i'm not saying it works for everybody but for those it can completely change their life and that's what i'm here for is like life changers baby you know we gotta i just feel really led to turn around and help those that are still struggling and no matter what that looks like you know who knows i might become a therapist one day i don't know i don't know where life's gonna take me but what i do know is that um I'm really blessed, man. I'm in a really good place in my life and in my walk, like spiritually. Uh, I feel a really close connection with God, closer than I have in, in the, within the past year, to be honest, like right now. It's just been uh, pretty powerful the way that he's been working, always working in my life, you know, but <laughs> it's when we're actually uh, putting, like, putting our eyes towards him. Um, and I'm like, oh, okay, now I see. But um, I can't really think anything else. I mean, other than my my competitions, I'm training for a hundred miler right now, man. Well, congratulations! <laughs> that sounds like a very tough thing to do there. Um, thank you for coming on here and sharing your story. I know that it's it's hard sometimes, and for myself. It was so hard for me to finally just be vulnerable and tell stuff that I thought that I would never tell anybody. But the feeling I got afterwards was almost like, you know, comparable to like walking out of prison. You know, I felt liberated. I felt like there was weight off my shoulders, you know, and I, the people that I told my story to, like not necessarily at the time, they didn't say anything, you know, and it, it never works like that, at least for me. Um, but later on down the road, there I heard someone say, yeah, man, I heard you tell your story one time. And I didn't really learn anything from it, but it gave me the message of don't give up. And I, at that moment in time, I didn't know that I was going to be doing this podcast. But at that moment in time, that was my first realization of the power that story holds and that we should utilize it because, you know, I mean, 
our story is our strength. So I just want to thank you. Uh, I want to say keep being a light in the world. I know you're one of the most humble people I've ever known, but it's awesome to see you thriving and living life. And just to hear the confidence of you saying the amazing Caitlin, you know, because I knew you whenever I knew you. I know you. I've seen you at the top of the mountain. I've seen you in the valley, you know, and just to, just as a, like a personal thing, I've I've never seen you like say something with your chest, so to speak. You know, you said amazing, Caitlin. It's so awesome to see. It's awesome to see people reconnect with their families. It's awesome to see them being able to love not only on others, but loving themselves, you know, because that's really the goal. That's the goal is to love yourself so much. You ain't got to drink. You ain't got to get high. You know, you ain't got to escape the life that you're in because you love it. So I just want to say thank you. Man, you know, you, I know you're trying to, to write this up. If I could just say, you know, this, this one last thought, cause you know, I think that it's important. Um, the legacy that we leave, you know, just some of the things that you just said, about me, Jack, like that to me is speaks to the type of legacy that I want to leave, you know, like I, I want to be known for being humble. Like to me, that was like, that's the most honorable thing that I have ever heard somebody say of me because, you know, I, I hope that's what I strive for, right? Is I, I want to live in humility I don't want to think that I'm above or more than others. Like we're all the same. And, you know, the, um, I'm excited about this. I'm excited about you, man. I'm super proud of you. I'm so like, I love to see just you learning. I love to see you being courageous and stepping out in your own purpose. And cause I've always believed in you, you know, and like you said, same, same thing. Like I've seen you go through the struggles. I've seen you in the valleys. I've seen you on the mountains and no one's disposable, man. You know, like uh, that's the things that bring us together and the way that we, like, how are we making those changes in our life to be like, what kind of legacy do we want to leave when we're sitting in our rocking chairs at the end of life, you know, and uh, we're sitting there looking back on our life like what what is that going to look like and and I don't want mine's not going to look like living in fear anymore man and I hope that other people can be inspired by that and know that there's hope that they can do anything that they set their mind to whether they need help with it that's fine that's cool you know it is what it is I mean we all need help sometimes and I just want to see you know people become the person that they were meant to be the person they were always always meant to be that's that's there right now they just need that little flame to help them to be empowered so i appreciate you man this is <laughs> this is awesome i'm excited to hear more stories and uh, i'm just i'm honored to to know you to call you my brother and to be able to just do life with you you know i love you man i love you too thank you 